Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Urban Outfitters, Fenty Beauty, and Expedia. And even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use and you get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers. And Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. This is the Intelligence Matters Podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Sponsored by Raytheon. How concerned are you about the midterms? I'm concerned that the Russians never left. We need to ask ourselves, why was it so easy for the Russians to help divide this country? This is going to involve a response by Congress and the White House. The White House response to Congress's bill that addressed this and asked for more sanctions was slow, grudging. Folks were to say to me, what's the most important takeaway? I would say is, it's not what the Russians did, it's how the president reacted. Mike Quigley was elected to Congress in 2009 to represent Illinois' 5th Congressional District. He is a former Cook County commissioner who began his political career doing community service. In 2015, Representative Quigley was appointed by Democratic leader Nancy Pelosi to serve on the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. He also serves on the House Appropriations Committee. He is the co-founder and co-chair of the Congressional Transparency Caucus, where he works to implement common-sense transparency measures that hold government officials accountable. He was a practicing attorney for more than a decade, and he also served as an adjunct professor of political science at Loyola University and Roosevelt University, lecturing on politics, the environment, and local government. I recently sat down with Representative Quigley to talk about national security issues and his service on the House Intelligence Committee. We will be right back with our discussion with Representative Quigley after a word from our exclusive sponsor, Raytheon. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Podcast presented by Raytheon. From connected devices to infrastructure to critical mission systems, Raytheon crosses networks, markets, and continents defending every side of cyber to make the world a safer place. Congressman, welcome to the show. It is always good to see you. It is great to be here. Mike, I want to walk through the national security issues that you've spent a lot of time focused on. 
But before we do that, I wanted to ask you where your interest in national security came from. It's interesting. Uh, we, I was a Cook County commissioner for 10 years before I, I went to Congress. And I think we, we'd like to think we understand these things until you get the immersion as a member. And then, you know, there was interest in a lot of different issues for me uh, on an environmental basis, climate change, worldwide cooperation. But again, once you get into Congress, it's a different story. All of a sudden, you've got to think about the Army and the Navy and making decisions about where do we put our men and women uh, who are in harm's way to protect us. And the final part of that is I was talking to our good friends, Jimmy and Dutch, uh, members who were on the Intel Committee who got term limited off. And we would talk for hours about the issues that they were addressing. Boy, I was in. Fascinating, critical, important, challenging. So I approached the leadership and asked to get on the committee. And uh, from then on, I realized just how important it is. I suppose that's what drove me most to focus on it even more and something I want to do for the rest of my career here. There's not a lot of direct benefit to your constituents from you serving on the House Intelligence Committee, right? It's different than the Armed Services Committee where, you know, there are military bases all over the place and, and big defense contractors. Do you talk to your constituents about your service on the committee and how important it is and why you do it? Well, first, you're right. I mean, from a political point of view, it's not a committee that will raise you money. And when you're in the committee, uh, even in these hearings that we've had the last year and a half, you're there all day. I sat through a, a appropriations markup yesterday, but I could spend the day returning calls, texting and emailing while I was doing it. As you know, in the locations we are for the intel briefings, you're not talking to anyone. So it's not a great committee for the political world. I will say this, though. You can make anything you do here applicable. And if you help educate and lead your constituents, they can be helped to understand why it's so important to them. I think it's easy enough for for me to communicate with my constituents that how we defend ourselves internationally and domestically keeps them safe at home. I represent Chicago's north side and the western suburbs. We have extraordinary transportation centers, rail, O'Hare Airport. I represent Wrigley Field. Well, Wrigley Field is six feet away. It's outermost built a wall from the street. So uh, Chicago and areas in my district are prime targets. So I think it's helpful to educate the public as to what seemingly is an issue unrelated is what keeps them safe here. For those in Europe who have faced these attacks and the, the attempts and the successful attempts that have taken place in the United States, it could happen here. And as you've suggested, those attacks unfortunately will continue. How do I use my intel work to keep them safe? So I worked very closely, um, as you know, with both committees for 33 years. When I was acting director and deputy director, it was almost on a daily basis. And to all of your constituents who might be listening, I'll say that every member of the two intelligence committees are serving the national security interests of the United States as much as, as anybody at the Defense Department or CIA or State Department. Uh, it is extraordinarily important service. So thank you for that. I would agree. I was impressed 
when I got to Congress with the quality of membership, the, the effort, the intellectual capabilities, just how driven people were to serve, those that serve on those two committees are extraordinary. There are very few, and I, I think if, if you're not interested, you get weaned off. You need to spend the time. It is not just the time you're getting briefed. It's the briefing books. It's the additional travel that you do. But I'll reverse this. I had very little interaction with the intelligence community before. Three-plus years ago, I began serving. Travels and the briefings I've got, the interactions I've had, it is an extraordinary group of individuals that work in the intelligence community. I think the best thing that happened to me before the Russian investigation started was that I had a two-year time where we could talk about the critical issues of the day, Iran, Syria, North Korea, and so forth, and how it relates to the, to the home front before it got into this difficult sometimes partisan bickering that took place. But I saw the best of what the intelligence community had to offer. Okay, Congressman, let's, let's dig in on the issues. And maybe the place to start is to, is to say that the Director of National Intelligence, Dan Coates, recently gave a public speech in, in Normandy, France, in which he did not just warn that the Russians might interfere in the midterm elections, he essentially, not directly, but he essentially said that they already are. And I know this is an issue that you care deeply about. How concerned are you about the midterms? I'm concerned that the Russians never left. I know that uh, Director Comey said they'll be back. I think what he was implying is they're here and they're not leaving. Well, let's look at what uh, the Russians did as part of the Kremlin playbook. Uh, three of the most obvious things. They attacked our election infrastructure. They hacked into somewhere between 20 and 40 state boards of election, including in August of 2016, my own state of Illinois. They hacked and dumped emails into political parties and individuals, and uh, they weaponized social media. This is a great concern. Uh, recently, I was the sponsor on the Appropriations Committee of a measure to and we, we're successful bringing $380 million into buying new election equipment. I think the problem with that was the decimal point was in the wrong spot. The last time the federal government got involved in reinvesting in our election infrastructure, it was about $3.5 billion, and it was after hanging chads and Bush Gore. We thought enough of the credibility of our democratic process to spend that money to have that kind of investment. What discourages me is it was only $380 million. Yeah. And this year so far, uh, leadership across the aisle has seen fit to zero that money out. So I'm very concerned that not just that the Russians are going to do this, that they have and will continue to, but we're not prepared. I think the second element of that is the education process that addresses the other two measures, or cybersecurity and the weaponization of social media, I just returned from Helsinki where with the Aspen Institute. We learned more about what the Russian intentions are and how to protect it. Obviously, Finland has a long history of addressing uh, Russian aggression militarily and uh, politically. Uh, it is clear that the success there is education and a willingness from on a bipartisan basis. And I think the elections recently in Europe 
the parties got together and recognized this is what's happening. We need to be prepared. We need to be unified against this sort of thing. I think that's the second critical element that we are not prepared to do. Inoculating the American public, making them aware of what the Russians' attempts are and how to react against that. I I guess I'll close the part by saying we need to ask ourselves, why was it so easy for the Russians to help divide this country? Why were their efforts so easy at success? From an infrastructure side, we've got old equipment and we don't have the technical training. But on the other elements is the fact that we're so divided. We are so willing to accept the worst in each other. We have to somehow get past that and recognize that partisanship is okay. It's okay to disagree. But when it becomes divisive to the point where we can't get anything done and we're creating long-term dangerous impacts on our democracy, we have to stop and get together. So you've long sounded the alarm on uh, the issue of election security. And you just said that you don't think we're doing enough. How far are we from where we need to be? We have 12 states that currently don't even have a paper trail on their voting machines. So uh, for those who vote with digital scan, as you're voting, you see this roll of paper running alongside your vote. That allows states to do a full audit after the fact. You know, it's not just that we want to get this right. We want the American public to appreciate the integrity of the process. States are able to go in after a vote and do an audit and determine that this is what happened, that someone wasn't able to hack in. Those states that don't have this ability, frankly, can't even tell us if we've been hacked and how to prepare for it. I remember questioning Mr. Johnson, Homeland Security Chief from before, about this, and he reminded us that most entities, public sector and private sector, aren't aware that they've been hacked. Someone else had to tell them that it took place. And it often takes 12 months to two years before they find out that it's even happened. Now, this is from sophisticated actors, right? We know that Target was hacked, and it took them a long time, many others, to know what took place. So uh, there are 9,000 entities that run a federal election. That's a lot. Mm-hmm. Not all of them, very few of them have the kind of sophistication necessary. So we're not anywhere near where we need to be to protect them. And finally, our infrastructure is averaging 10 to 12 years old. Think of that as having a Tandy computer on your desktop. It's an old computer, and it's not going to be able to even accept the modern anti-hacking software necessary to prevent this. That's why I used to play Pong on my Tandy computer. (laughs) The other piece of this, right, is the, as you mentioned, the social media piece and, and very interested in your thoughts on the responsibilities of the social media companies and whether you believe there needs to be regulation going forward. You know, I do. When I first got here, I served on oversight and government reform and the judiciary committees. And the issue of the day back then was making sure that these platforms and the activities on the social media platforms were protected. Here we're talking about piracy back then. 
And the reaction we got and the pushback we got back was uh, there were many who felt that the Internet was sacrosanct and basically it was the last vestige of the wild, wild west and don't try to regulate it at all. Uh, I think like any media outlet, there has to be some regulation. And I think there's finally a willingness by Facebook, Twitter, Google and others to accept this responsibility. If I put on an ad on TV or radio, a political ad, or in print, it has to say, paid for by Citizens for Quigley. I think the recognition that anonymous donations or ads, especially the bot issue, has to be changed. So I I saw in the last wave of testimony before Congress a willingness to accept that, right? Transparency, accountability, some elements of going after truth squads. It ought to say, I am a bot, if that's what it is, because the American public deserves that. I think the final element of that is, I do think the American public listens to the, so these platforms and their leadership. I think they have unique opportunities and abilities to help educate the American public to the points I've talked about. So I think that responsibility comes first. Congress has a responsibility to call them into account. But uh, I think what I've learned in almost 10 years now in Congress is we're not nearly as good at this from a legislative point of view. And I think there's probably going to be resistance from the White House. If there's a willingness of these companies and the American public to get together and understand what we're challenged with. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. We'll be right back with more Intelligence Matters. In a world where every degree, every dollar, every defender, and every domain is connected, seeing every angle is essential. That's why Raytheon works across networks, markets, and continents, combining human ingenuity with artificial intelligence to outpace and outmatch every threat, to protect commercial enterprise, critical infrastructure, and mission-critical systems, to deliver trusted, innovative solutions that secure our way of life and defend every side of cyber. This is Raytheon, making our increasingly connected world a safer place. Because when everything is connected, security is everything. So there's two pieces here in terms of protecting ourselves, right? There's the defense that you've been talking about. And then there's the imposing costs on the perpetrator, right? In this case, Russia. And I don't believe that we have deterred uh, Vladimir Putin from, in, from trying to interfere in our democracy. Two questions that I think flow from that, if you agree. One is, and I think this responsibility falls on both the Obama administration and the Trump administration, what more do we need to do to deter him from playing this game? I think it began with the Obama administration's reaction to this. I think the reaction was slow, but I don't think it was because there was a, any malicious thought there. President candidate Trump, if we recall, was saying it's all rigged, the election process, right? And listening to their testimony, members of the administration were very concerned that they weren't given the appearance of tilting this election. 
So the, the time frame from which they reacted and the manner in which they reacted was slower than I think we'd all like to look back with hindsight, uh, alerting the American public as to what was taking place. Now, I know President Obama told uh, President Putin to cut it out, but uh, I do think the reaction should have been stronger and more deliberative. I think that's the only thing the Russians acknowledge. Fact of the matter is, when I was in Helsinki, Ambassador Kislyak addressed the group, and again, very definitive denial at all counts. Well, we know better. Uh, with extraordinary uniformity and certainty, the entire intelligence community alerted us over a year and a half ago now. This is what the Russians did, right? And I think there's, for the most part, bipartisan understanding. Speaker Ryan said in his press release just uh, recently, in a press conference recently, that uh, this is about what the Russians did and how we respond to that. My reaction to that is let's do more. Right. This is going to involve uh, a response by Congress and the White House. The White House's response to Congress's bill that addressed this and asked for more sanctions was slow, grudging. Obviously, uh, Russia reacts to what the White House said. They said, oh, we're, we're getting a pass here. When the president says this is a witch hunt, this is a hoax, it could have been a heavyset guy from Jersey, uh, I think the Russians' reaction to that is they're getting a pass. As important as that is the American public sees that as well, especially the president's base sees that. That's a problem because when we try to address these issues that we talked about before on a defensive posture, the fact that the president of the United States is addressing it as a witch hunt, their reaction is, well, what do we have to do? What should have happened is the president should have said, we're going to cooperate with this investigation. Mr. Putin cut this out. We're going to react from a defensive and offensive posture. We're going to impose these sanctions, and they're going to be real, and uh, we're going to work with our allies to enforce them. So it's a great, great segue, Congressman, to the House Intelligence Committee's investigation into what happened in the 2016 election. handful of questions around that, and I know better than most that you're limited in what you can say. But the Republicans on the committee, first question really is the Republicans on the committee came to the conclusion that the intelligence community was wrong in its assessment that one of Putin's goals was to disadvantage Secretary Clinton um, and help President Trump. Your view on that conclusion? I think that that was true on the House side, but the Senate Republicans wouldn't even go along with that. It was um, hard to watch. The, the fact of the matter is, you can – anybody who sits through intelligence briefings for over th- three years understands that well, what we're getting briefed on is never with certainty. But they're very clear when they brief us the degrees of how certain they are. And, and people who are veterans of the committee begin to gauge how they should uh, adjust their beliefs on such things. But when it's the unanimity and the degree of certainty backed up, with high confidence, fact, I believe, yes. Yeah, backed up with the facts that we presented with high confidence. You have to address that. I, I don't think they understood that this doesn't mean you have to give in on your principles of this. The fact that the Russians did this isn't as important as our reaction. I think what's missing here is, after all this time, I've come to the conclusion that 
what the Russians did was, as a wise man said, the political equivalent of 9-11, our response to that is probably more important and will have more profound impacts on our country going forward. The integrity and the abilities of the intelligence community, the integrity and the independence of law enforcement, especially the FBI and the Justice Department. If folks were to say to me, what's the most important takeaway? I would say is, it's not what the Russians did. It's how the president reacted and how my colleagues on the Republican side, on the House side, reacted. Uh, So what can we expect from the committee going forward here? Does the investigation continue? Where Where do we go? I think the best indication of future behavior is past behavior. So let's track what happened during the course of this investigation. I believe gentlemen like Mr. Conaway from Texas and others were attempting to find out what took place. There were other Republicans who were very involved in this investigation. I want to single them out because I think it's important that... Trying to get to the truth. They're trying to get to the truth. And I do believe that there was uh, enough bipartisan support for that. I think the administration and the chairman of the committee made that extraordinarily difficult. So where do we go from here? Look, they they had a gag order in the White House that their representatives weren't to talk about key issues at key times. We refused to subpoena them. We refused, the, the chairman of the committee refused to subpoena key witnesses, key information. If we're going to find out, there couldn't have been any roadblocks. There were a lot. This began with chairman of the committee going to the White House at midnight, getting information, coming back and briefing the White House in a bizarre mode. It began with the White House accusing the beginnings of the conspiracy theory. President Obama wiretapped Trump Tower. So this is how the investigation began. So you knew you were going to have one hand tied behind anyway. And Put in the context with what else do we understand? The Watergate investigation, beginning to end 28 months before the president resigned. This is, I would argue, compared to Watergate, far more complicated because it involves a foreign adversary and a long period of time, I believe, before him. And it involves a White House and elements of the Republican administration pushing back and making this extremely difficult. So... This is more complicated. Do uh, you try to subpoena a Russian oligarch? Right. Uh, but also try to do this when there's a gag order, they're refusing subpoenas, and they're not making people answer questions. Right? Is Eric, there independent work that the Democrats can do? There is, but it's a lot harder because we don't have the ability to subpoena. And we don't have the resources. We had a, a witness recently involving the Cambridge Analytic issues that we called in on our own. We actually had to have leadership help pay for just having the court reporters there. So we're going to try to the best of our abilities to continue the investigation. And I think as important as that to message this, it's not Bob Mueller's job to message as he goes along. They've actually done a very good job keeping leaks out of their side of all this. I can't say the same for Congress or the White House or anybody else, but he's done a good job there. 
it's just made it more difficult for us, unfortunately. So on the partisanship, I think I mentioned earlier that I've worked with the committee for a very, very long time, and I have not seen the partisanship as bad as it is today, except Benghazi was close. And and I'm just wondering to your views, how do how does the committee get back to where it needs to be? It is uh, one of the victims of this investigation, and more importantly, how the investigation uh, was undertaken. I had the same I had the same experience again. My first two years there, I thought the committee was run uh, on a a bipartisan way. I thought the hearings were... This is when Mike Rogers was the chairman. Well, Dutch, no, just the, after that, but just the last that. two years under yeah. the Obama administration, I thought Chairman Nunes was, was much more fair. We mm-hmm. had more meetings, more briefings, encouraged more codels. Sadly, I think that's changed, and I think there's been a lot of hard feelings that have taken place between staff and the members how that changes, it's hard to say. I think it probably won't until this investigation is complete and other issues take its place. But, uh, you know, we're challenged, we're challenged, as you know, from across the world and domestically with critical issues. I think we're not meeting that challenge right now. Has the partisanship um, affected the committee's relationship with the IC in any way? I think the IC is sophisticated and understand what has taken place and who has made this difficult. I think they're desperately trying to avoid being snarled in this, and that's hard to do. When the White House is saying bad things about you, questioning your credibility on an ongoing basis, I think it's extraordinarily difficult. So I think they they still try to. One of the problems with that has been I think they're feeling the pressure. I think the Justice Department is feeling the pressure. The fact is they warned when the Nunez memo was released, uh, the Justice Department and the intel community warned a dangerous practice. This was a a great concern for sources and methods and long-term protections of what the community can do to keep us safe, but it was released anyway. And recently the pressure to meet turn over this information as if we are already in trial mode and this was discovery that they were entitled to. We're changing norms and practices that will have impacts on the ability of both those entities to do their job in the future. Congressman, you have been very gracious with your time. I just wanted to ask you one more question, which is when you first came in, we were we were chatting about uh, your election to Congress and uh, the most important lesson you learned from that and uh, and what you share with young people about it. I thought that was a great story, and I wonder if you share that with the listeners. Yeah, I, I taught college for seven years at Loyola and Roosevelt University, and they'd all ask, you know, how do you get to where you are as an elected official? I was a county commissioner and now in Congress. And I said, um, there's an old locker room placard that's corny, but it says the will to win isn't nearly as important as the will to to prepare to win. I would say for those listening who are interested in public office, you don't win it during the campaign. The campaigns are critical. They're decisive. But you don't put yourself in a position to be in any of these positions unless you've spent a lifetime getting ready, being intellectually prepared. Do you have a story? Why would anyone 
write you a donation? Why would anyone vote for you? I think people forget that obvious part and that there needs to be all the work you do before. So in November of 2008, in Grant Park, I was there with my wife on the stage as president-to-be, President-elect Obama, walked out with his family and said to his daughters, you get the puppy, we won. The rumor was flying around that uh, Congressman Rahm Emanuel was going to leave to become chief of staff. So it was one of those moments. My wife said, so what are you going to do? That decision was tough. And as you've faced in your life many challenges where you had to make that decision, do I take this risk? Do I move forward? I would argue that all the work I did before then that allowed me to be prepared for this job and to be a viable candidate was so much more important. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not just true of politics. It's true of everything in life, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. The relationships you've built are yeah. important yeah. as well. Congressman, thank you very much for being with us. Anytime. Great. Thank you. Appreciate it. That was Representative Mike Quigley. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next time for more Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell, sponsored by Raytheon. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Claire Himes. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morrell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.